Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. continuing a sermon series uh, through the book of Proverbs called The Wisdom for the Way. Uh, And uh, this afternoon, we're talking about what does it look like um, to navigate our our raging world. Um, And uh, I I think it's a particular subject matter that is timely and that is challenging. And so um, because of that, we're reading from a couple of different Proverbs um, and, uh, and so, uh, then we'll, we'll kind of dive in a little bit more, um, a little bit more to it. So, uh, I will also say, um, beginning next week, we are going to have pew Bibles. Um, so, uh, we're going to have Bibles for everyone. Also, you can bring your own Bible. Um, we're going to still print stuff. Um, but that's just, you know, by way of announcement, we're trying some new things as we move to the Y. Uh, and um, anyways, that, that'll, that'll be a fun thing. But uh, turn with me to your bulletin or your Bible, if you have it, to um, First Proverbs 15, 1, then verse 18. Then we're going to skip down to Proverbs 22, verses 24 to 25, and then chapter 29, verses 8 and 9. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. And finally, Proverbs 29. Scoffers, they set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray with me. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word, and um, though often we're kind of fumbling around in the darkness, uh, we thank you that your word is a light unto our, le- our feet and a lamp unto our path. And give us ears to hear and eyes to see, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I don't know how many of y'all, uh, let me do that with it. Um, how many of y'all uh, are, uh, were, were Ted Lasso fans? Uh, maybe many of y'all were Ted Lasso fans, but I have a controversial statement, and that is that I think there is a show better than Ted Lasso, um, and it is called The Bear. How many of y'all have seen The Bear? I, we got a couple. All right, good. Um, so I've been told that the Leachmans perhaps have a, a low threshold. We're willing to deal with a lot of cuss words. So that's, there's a lot of cuss words in the show, but it is fantastic. It's about a guy, a chef named Carmi Berzato, hence the name The Bear, right? Um, he's an award-winning and famous chef who moves back to Chicago to take over uh, the, their family's kind of dive restaurant that was called The Beef. It served these famous Italian beef sandwiches Um, His older brother, Michael, had tragically died and left the restaurant to Carmi, um, wanting for him to kind of flourish, and uh, this was going to be something he was so good at and could do really well. And all throughout the show, there's this incredible blend of dramatic tension 
and kind of lighthearted, uh, lighthearted moments. And as we get to know Carmi and his family, we see just how messed up they are. Um, but we also see how strangely inclusive uh, they are as well, kind of always inviting friends and, and family to dine with them and to be a part of what they're doing. Um, there's no better evidence for this than one particular episode of the most recent season, which is kind of the Christmas dinner flashback episode. Um, and imagine you're at the most tense Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner that your family has ever been to, right, or has ever been involved in. You know, the one where maybe everyone drank a little bit too much or somehow an uncle or you or somebody said something a little bit too much uh, and all of a sudden the differences, the grievances are being aired and the, the air is tense. Well, this episode captures that tension to a T, Right, the family is stressed preparing a, a, a traditional meal for their, their Christmas dinner, which is seven fishes. Right? They're fighting with one another, and it's escalated so much that Carmi's brother Michael has thrown a fork at, at, at their uncle, um, and now the uncle is raging and daring him to do it again. And it's at that exact moment that the mom, who's been kind of nuts preparing in the kitchen, walks in with the fish and says, what did I miss? And everyone is tense, and they're really awkward, and they're silent. And she suggests, well, who's going to say the grace? And you know whoever says it, like, it is is about to be a dumpster fire one way or another. Everything could go up in flames if one spark gets lit. And so they nominate a cousin's husband, Right, someone who's sort of outside of the family to say grace, and he's trying not to do it, but he finally does it. And this guy is played by comedian John Mulaney. Um, and I'm going to read for you what he prays uh, in that episode. I'm going to try to do so dramatically to capture the awkwardness that he brings. It's great that we're all together and healthy, I, I think. Uh, no one's physically very sick. I'm, I'm so grateful um, for this beautiful meal and for Donna. What an incredible job Donna did. And I could hear in there, and it sounded very hard, and, and it's gorgeous. And is he still holding the fork? Right. Uh, okay, okay, he is. Listen, um, everyone's asking about the seven fishes or why we do it. It's a chance to be together and to take care of each other and to eat together. And there's seven fishes, which means that you have to make seven entirely different dishes, seven entirely different ways, and that takes a lot of time. And I think spending that time and using that time on the people that we love is how we show them that we love them. And maybe we eat too much, and we definitely drink too much, and we say too much without listening. But tonight, we, we're going to eat seven fishes, which is absurd, Um, but we have to take extra time to do it and we have to chew more and we have to listen more and we only get to do this tonight one time. And so I, I by the way, I, I love it. I love being here. Thank you for having me every year at this. I, look, I very much look forward to this and, and I love you. But I was thinking about, about what you said about bears <laughs> and how they're aggressive They're aggressive, but they're kind. They're sensitive. 
You guys have been so kind to me. You let me hang out with you every holiday. I don't have a family like this, and I am really grateful that you make space for me at this table and you make time for me on the holidays. May God bless us and keep us in in the new year, and please give Michael the strength not to throw the fork. Uh, (laughs) Amen. Um, So kind of in that moment, uh, what I love about it is that John Mulaney had a choice. His character had a choice. He recognized that everything was up, could go up in flames or there was possibly one other way out to calm and cool the tension in the air. He had to choose his words very carefully to try to turn away the wrath of the dinner, uh, of the dinner table. And as, as we are living in a cultural moment that feels very much like a tense family Thanksgiving dinner, um, how do we navigate those waters with wisdom? And so tonight I want to talk about this in three kind of logical parts. The first is where does anger and raging actually come from? Uh, the second is what should we do with our anger? And then the third is, okay, what is the answer? Um, and the answer is a cross-shaped love. So where does our anger and raging come from? Well, it comes both without and within. Um, how does it come from within? Well, Our anger is actually a reaction to a broken world. It comes out of us as we react to other circumstances, feelings of vulnerability, grief, isolation, powerlessness. In Christian contexts where we want everything to be and to feel nice, we can view anger as as a pseudo-sin. But anger is not always sinful or wrong. In fact, um, Ephesians 4 tells us, that we are to be angry, but not sin, right? which assumes that sometimes it's okay, maybe even right, to feel angry. Right? It's possible to get angry, and even when we're mad, it is possible to not sin. So if anger is wrong, then it would mean that we, we should not get angry about things like abuse or human trafficking, right? those things that are horrifying and should absolutely enrage us We live in a hotbed of it here in Houston alone, a fact that should enrage us to action. If anger itself were a sin, that would mean that we couldn't get angry at the bully, right? Someone who was bullying our child. In fact, some of the maddest I've ever been was a three-year-old boy who bullied my two-year-old daughter, right? I I got irrationally angry at that three-year-old boy. We couldn't get angry about unjust wars if anger was wrong or about abuse in the church, or racism, or poverty, or any of the other things that should absolutely enrage us. That type of anger feels right, and Scripture actually teaches that it is right. It's right because it's that type of anger that is righteous. It is righteous anger. It's being angry that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Or as one pastor, um, John Bloom, put it, it's being angry at what God is angry at. God's anger is always a result of his holiness and his righteousness. God's anger is a response to unrighteousness. Thus, he definitely gets angry about the mistreatment of children. He gets angry about greed. He gets angry about racism, about hoarding of resources that he has so freely given to us. He gets angry about disobedience and self-righteousness, those things that we believe deep down when we think we don't really need him, or at best, we just kind of want our life, but with a little bit of a side God, kind of like 
our dressing on the side. We just want to dip it in there on our own terms. God's anger is always in reaction to sin. And it's focused toward that sin. And so when we are similarly angry, our anger is also righteous. But the problem is that our anger is rarely righteous, right? Even if it begins from a righteous place, it rarely stays righteous. If we're rightly upset uh, that people in our, our work or in our home are not listening to our instructions, um, we're typically more miffed that they don't listen to our own authority than we are kind of struggling with the fact that maybe they have a pride issue. Um, right? we're, we're more deeply hurt for ourselves than we are for them. Do you see the distinction? And when our righteous anger shifts into unrighteous anger, as it so often does, it initiates a chain reaction. Paul tells us in one of his other letters, in his letter to Galatians, that our sinful anger often produces all kinds of unrighteousness. It produces enmity, strife, divisions, or rivalries. Our anger places ourselves at the very center of the world, see? And it places those that we are angry with at the side or at another position. Rather than being angry at injustice or an unrighteous act and turning towards God, right, the very actual center of the universe, we place ourselves at the center of the universe, right? Our anger says, I am right, and now who's coming with me? Right? Almost like Jerry Maguire, right? Who's coming with me? Just him and the fish. Our unrighteous anger creates factions. It creates divisions. It places me against them, us versus them. And in those factions, in that anger, we cease to see the divinely created person on the other side. And that's the type of anger that is currently rampant within our own culture that has been growing hotter and hotter every year. The anger that causes us to dehumanize those who think differently or vote differently or parent differently. It's me, kind of, you know, the good Democrat against the crooked, heartless conservatives or, or vice versa. It's the anger that comes from other sins, sins like envy that we talked about a few weeks ago, where in our anger, we refuse to be happy um, for another person's success. I kind of saying and believing things like, I can't believe she made the team. I bet her dad bought the jerseys for the entire team, you know? So sin of anger comes from within, but it also comes from without. It comes and is influenced by others. It can be inflamed by others. In, in Proverbs 22, it says that our anger can be influenced by other angry people, kind of like an echo chamber, right, where we just sort of, in, in an echo chamber locker room, where we're hyping each other up to a point that we can't actually listen uh, to anybody or think straight anymore. We learn their ways, as the proverb says, right, and their anger can be both taught to us, but it can also be caught by us. Even Proverbs 15.1 affirms this. Right? As Solomon writes that a harsh word stirs up anger. We typically see ourselves as the speaker of that proverb, right? Like, well, okay, I'm the one who would speak that harsh word. Um, but we could also be the recipient of the harsh word. And what would that do to us? It would stir up anger within us. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe a coworker. 
maybe a total stranger is short with us or downright mean, how do we react in those circumstances? Often, it enrages us. And if you've ever been to an LSU sporting event where you've supported another team, you know exactly what this feels like, right? As they sit there and they yell, tiger bait, tiger bait, at you over and over and over again to the point that your blood just begins to boil. And I cheer for Vanderbilt. Nobody cares. I don't get it, right? Um, We like to think of ourselves as individuals, as people who are in charge of our own faculties and emotions, right? No one can make me feel or do anything. And there's truth to that. No one can make you sin. No one makes you make the choices that you make. But we are interconnected far more than us individualistic Americans like to believe. And so as the temperature and the anger around us grow, so too does the temperature and anger within our own heart. Has that happened to you? Do you feel it? Are you experiencing more anger or a shorter fuse or intense reactions to particular issues that seem to set you off like they never did before? How can we better navigate this rising temperature that we find ourselves in? And and one very practical way of doing this is is trying um, to stop spending time with the outraged. What are the things that send you into outrage? I know for me, it was watching the news. If I read it, I was a little bit better. If I watched it, I was immediately outraged. That's just one practical example. But that's not what we really want to talk about. But think more about it in your own particular life. So what do we do with our anger when we have it? As we've talked about throughout this series, the Bible describes uh, Christians as being people of the way. The way being the way of following Jesus. Um, So which way are we going to go with our anger? Are we going to indulge our anger, kind of nurturing it, feeding it, allowing for it to grow and walk down that path of wrath? Or are we going to go another way? Will we go the way of life or the way of death? A soft answer to turn away wrath or a hot-tempered answer to stir up strife. Proverbs 29 makes the choice clear. In case we missed it earlier, we can choose to go either the way of the wise or the way of the fool. It is fools, according to this proverb, that scoff. It is fools and those who do not listen to the wisdom of the Lord who allow their emotions um, to lead them wherever they go. In essence, the fool is bound by what they feel. That doesn't mean that the wise are never supposed to feel. Uh, That doesn't mean that the wise don't operate with many of their feelings in mind. But rather, it's to say that the fool is enslaved to emotions and to their feelings. Whatever their heart says, they do. Whatever their feelings say, they're bound to it. Whatever Whatever angers them becomes like a flash of red, and they cannot see anything else. Someone who's wise will seek to calm their own passions and and those around them. Someone who's wise recognizes that even when there is a valid reason for anger, um, nothing productive or right will come from further inflaming. Someone who's wise seeks to turn away wrath, not to indulge it. Someone who's wise seeks to bring truth, not mischaracterizations or hyperbole. That's what verse 9 is saying. It's telling us to imagine a courtroom. 
in that courtroom are both the wise and the fool. Um, the wise person will bring truth in the midst of the courtroom. A wise person will bring an argument that is informed by reality. But the fool is one who hears that argument and, and has one of two reactions. Right? Either they're enraged by the argument or they laugh it off. The passage is telling us that the one who's wise will actually aid in the quieting and the calming of those around him. But the fool, on the other hand, will incite others. And I want to pause here for a moment because I think that it becomes far too easy for us to imagine this passage about our political opponents. I imagine that's what a lot of you are considering right now, right? Those on the left would point, even rightly, to Donald Trump and to his inciting of the anger of the vo- his voter base on January 6th. And those on the right would point to rioting in places like Minneapolis and, and Portland where racial unrest turned to rioting. There is no shortage of fingers to point in a world full of sinners because there is no shortage of biblical fools to point to. But let me urge us to begin by pointing the finger first and foremost to the fools that are in this room, the fool like me, the fool like you. For just a moment, don't worry so much about the fools that are out there because we have all been the fool where we have chosen the path of anger and wrath rather than the path of wisdom. And you might say, well, okay, what about when we're supposed to get angry and when we're supposed to get loud and mad People like Flannery O'Connor and her righteous anger uh, answered, why are your books always so grotesque um, in the presentation of injustice? And she said uh, very famously, for the hard of hearing you shout and for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. And she's right. It is not always right or Christian to be quiet in response uh, to injustices. But her point of when to shout and when to give a loud answer answer is not to do so when the temperature in the room is already crazy hot. Right? Rather, we give a loud answer instead of a soft answer when people don't care, when the room is tepid, when we're cold toward injustice or toward righteousness. Wisdom dictates that we try to get people to care in those circumstances. And sometimes shouting is appropriate. Right, although, of course, O'Connor wrote, and so she's using that phrase metaphorically. But when the world around us is hot, Proverbs is telling us that it is not wise to become inflamed ourselves. Rather, we're to seek the cool way, the soft way, the wise way. And that begs the question, well, how do we do that? It's with a cross-shaped love. Proverbs fifteen eighteen <clears throat> tells us that it is the one who is slow to anger that quiets the contention. That phrase, slow to anger, is one that is used over and over again in the Bible to describe God's attitude towards us, towards his people. That, that though God is righteous in his anger toward all ungodliness, towards our unrighteousness, he is slow to anger. Why? God is slow to anger because he's loving Right? Um, it's not because he feels like warm, cuddly feelings towards us and he wants us to have everything that we can possibly have that's right and good and he wants to give us all those good things. Um, and it's not because he doesn't really care about us and he's just sitting back being like, whatever. 
Um, no, God's deliberate delay of anger is an act of love, desiring that none should perish. It is in pursuing our good and desiring what is best for us. And so the passage is saying that in order to quiet kind of the rough waters of contention all around, we're to put on the very characteristics of God. We too are to be slow to anger. And the only way for us to be slow to anger is to love the way that God loves, to pursue the good of another more than our own desires or more than what our anger and our feelings dictate. To love the way that God loves is to respond to the temperature uh, and the temptation to burn hot with anger, right? where we divide the world into categories of us versus them. In those particular moments where we, in fact, maybe do have enemies, um, we are to see them as divinely created and in the image of God. When we feel tempted to burn with anger and, and to sow enmity and to tell lies about our opponent, loving the way that God loves means refusing to slander their name. We should instead seek their benefit and their betterment. Um, I think God was very uh, pointed to me this week. As, as I was preparing for the sermon, uh, I always I like to move around a lot when I'm, I'm writing, and so I go from one place to another place. And as I was driving, uh, I got to a four-way intersection, and as I was going into the intersection, someone decided they didn't want to wait, and they cut me off. Um, and in that moment, what did I do? What should I have done? Should I honk at them? Maybe, right? Uh, should I tailgate them in anger? No. Should I curse at them or should I pray for them? Um, I can tell you that my immediate heart's reaction was a, a strong desire for them to see the injustice that they had done in cutting in line, right? They were, in fact, wrong. Um, so maybe this was righteous anger as I was trying to justify what I was thinking and feeling next. But then my pride took over, right? I wanted them to taste and see my wrath. That's not the way of love. Um, the way of love is to actually love the driver, right? to seek their betterment. Had I confronted them in anger, which could have been a possible solution, it would have been to tell them that that type of driving was going to be dangerous for them in the future. Right? The unrighteous approach is the desire to avenge my lost five seconds. That's what my heart wanted. But God in his grace um, made me remember his word in these, in these moments. Right, our, our passage corresponds really nicely with the second scripture reading that Aaron read for us earlier. Um, Jesus in that, in that scripture reading is, is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about what does it look like to love? What is this way of Jesus? What does it look like to be angry but not to sin in our anger? He says to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. This doesn't mean to be pushovers. Uh, it doesn't mean um, to, to not respond with any sense of, of, of strength, but it means to love them. And in order to do that, you must slow be slow in your anger, discerning the reason and the response for your anger. You must seek their good instead of your good. 
You must seek their good for their benefit, not your own. So what does it look like to navigate the rage of our time? Um, to seek the good of our political po- opponent, to love a coworker who always seems to bring the tension of the workplace to a higher place, to love your spouse who doesn't seem to be pulling their own weight, to love the reckless driver on 610, right? It, it, well, it looks like the love of Jesus, the love of the cross, the love that despite being the king, um, Came to be, came to serve, not to be served. The love that, despite our rage and those all around, right, um, and the, despite the rage of all of those around Jesus in his final days, he still sought their good. Right, he loved them when they were actual physical enemies to him in that moment, even when they were throwing far more than forks at him, right, insulting him, beating them yelling as he went to be executed. He went to the cross and he prayed that God the Father would forgive them for they did not know what they do. He loves us even when we hate him. That is the love that Jesus has for us. That is the love that he asks for us to show to one another, particularly a world that is raging with hate and with anger right now. It is to love our enemies as Christ has loved us to love us, to love others in the midst of their raging, to love others because he first loves us. Would you all pray with me? Father, we, um, we struggle with anger in this particular moment in our, in our life and in our society. I pray, Father, that we would learn to follow in Jesus, follow in his footsteps. Lord, that we would remember his great love for us, that though we were enemies, of you, Christ died for us. That's the type of love you have for your children. And so I pray, Father, that you would fill us with that love for one another. We pray that you would give us this strength by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.